Well, I'm excited to be back and to uh, be able to preach the Word to you. I know we were on vacation last week, and we had the conference before that, and so I'm chomping at the bit <laughs> uh, to preach the Word, and uh, we're continuing back into the book of Ephesians this morning. I'm excited to get back into this exposition. And so if you would, take your Bible with you this morning and make your way to the book of Ephesians chapter number 1. Ephesians chapter number 1, and uh, our text for this morning is going to be verse 15 down through verse number 19. And uh, I originally thought I might could squeeze in uh, the rest of the chapter, but uh, as studying through this and breaking it down, it requires certainly two messages to finish out uh, chapter 1. And so we're going to be looking at a prayer that Paul offers on behalf of the Ephesians. And I've titled the message this morning, A Prayer for Every Church, because what Paul prays here is essentially uh, a prayer not only for the Ephesians, but it is a prayer uh, that I believe is needed for the churches in general, uh, throughout every age, throughout every generation. And so Ephesians 1 and verse 15 down through verse 19 will be our text. This will look at the first half of this prayer, and I pray that it will challenge us and uh, encourage us this morning. Notice that Paul writing here in verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might. We think this morning for a moment, how important is it that prayer be made for the churches. Do our churches need prayer? I think we would all agree that the answer to that is yes. Our churches indeed need prayer. This church, Lee Creek Baptist, indeed needs prayer. There is not a church that is in existence that does not need prayer. But in what ways do we need prayer? Sometimes we need prayer in ways that we don't realize that we need it. You see, prayer for the church is so much more than maybe requests for sickness or well-being or certain, uh, certain things that come up in our life. There is prayer needed for the church that involves the most essential needs of the church. Things as the church's purity and holiness and unity and spiritual growth and faithfulness and fruitfulness. These sorts of things are prayers we ought to offer up for the church of God. Now, churches, understand this, there is no such thing as a perfect church. There is no such thing as a perfect church. I believe it was Spurgeon who said, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it, because then you'll ruin it. Uh, churches, churches are made up of imperfect people, aren't they? Because churches are made up of people who are sinners saved by the grace of God alone. And though we are now seen as saints, God's holy ones, we are still a work in progress when it comes to living out and being who it is that Christ has called us to be. We as Christians, we as uh, members of His church, are always to be growing. 
Understand this, that if you're a Christian, there never comes a time in your life where you cease to grow. You're to always be growing in Christ. And Paul knew this for the church in Ephesus, which is why this text brings us to a prayer he offers on behalf of this church. Now, I want to give you the backdrop to this and note in verse 15 that Paul starts with these three words for this reason. Or therefore, wherefore, for this reason, which gives us an indicator that, that Paul, what he's about to say in this prayer is based on what he's already previously said. And what has Paul previously said? What has he brought to the Ephesians' attention? Well, we just came through this glorious, deep, and rich doxology in verse 3 through verse 14. And in this doxology, Paul lays out the depths of God's working for his people. He shows us the spiritual blessings they have in heavenly places. The Father's election of his people, the saints' holiness before God, the predestined adoption of believers, the redemption accomplished in Christ the sovereignty of God over all things in Christ, the inheritance given to the saints, the sealing of the believers by the Spirit, all of this culminating together up to this point. And so Paul says, for this reason, for this reason, which brings him to a prayer for the Ephesians with specific intention. And that specific intention in this prayer is that these Ephesians would fully know, would come to fully understand and appreciate the blessings that they have in Christ and who they are in Christ. His prayer for them is grounded in the depths of those spiritual blessings. Now, Paul's prayer begins in verse 16, and it comes down through verse 23. Today, we're going to look at the first half of that as it reveals his heart for the church what he has heard about the Ephesians, the manner in which Paul prays, and the essential need for the Ephesians here. But I want to encourage you this morning that as I have personally read and studied this passage, sure, it relates to the Ephesians, and it was for them, but it is also directly applicable to us today. As I read this text, I am challenged in my own prayer life. I am challenged in my own need for growth. And I pray that you will be as well. So notice with me three things in your notes here this morning about this prayer that Paul offers on behalf of the Ephesians. Notice with me firstly the reason for Paul's prayer. Number one, the reason for Paul's prayer. What is it that sparks Paul into prayer here uh, in connection with the doxology that we just read? Well, there's two things that stick out here that Paul hears about the Ephesians. The first thing he hears of in verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul firstly hears of the Ephesians' faith. He hears of their faith. Now, we just mentioned a moment ago the doxology of verse 3 through verse 14. This doxology of truth connected with the Ephesians' faith in Christ is what prompts Paul into prayer. Now remember, what is the doxology? Doxology is an utterance of praise. All of that 3 through 14, it is just a continuance of praise. It's one sentence in the Greek language as we mentioned in previous messages. And here's one thing that sticks out to me. 
Praise must always lead us into prayer. Praise should lead us into prayer. As Paul recounts the eternal glory of God's redemptive plan for His people, he is ushered into the throne room of grace to pray on behalf of those people, to pray on behalf of these Ephesians. Friends, if anything should bring us to our knees, it should be the immeasurable glory of God in salvation towards us. It must stir us deep within our soul, prompting us to pray with thanksgiving, with intercession, and with adoration of our God. See, Paul's prayer here reflects his heart, as should all of our prayers. Curtis Vaughn comments on this and says, A person's prayers are the mirror of his inner life. They reflect the depth of his emotions, the tenderness of his affection, the breadth of his sympathies, and the sincerity of his devotion. Prayer certainly reveals much about our souls and our hearts. Now, Paul here is stirred to prayer because of the Ephesians who are partakers of these eternal blessings that he just described in verse 3 through verse 14. Now, Paul says here, because I have heard of your faith. I've heard of your faith. Now, at this point is where some assume that Paul's writing to a different group other than the Ephesians because... Well, Paul knew the Ephesian believers personally, right? Having ministered there. Since he had ministered there in person, he wouldn't have heard of their faith as if he had not known them personally. But that's not a valid argument, I think. We must remember that Paul, at this point, he's not been to Ephesus for about four years. And at this point, he's now in prison. Paul had received updates about the churches by letter and by visitors, and there's a lot that can happen in a matter of four years. Now, what a joy it must have been for Paul to hear that the church that he had ministered there in Ephesus was continuing on in the faith, but not only they were continuing on in the faith, but that others were coming to faith through their ministry. See, this brings joy to Paul. It is always a joy to us to hear of faith in others, whether they are near or far from us. I don't know about you, but if whenever I read a, a missionary letter, and in that letter, the missionary describes someone they've worked with and that soul has been brought to faith. That brings joy to my heart. It ought to bring joy to your heart. Salvation ought to cause you to rejoice. I mean, uh, did, didn't Jesus say that uh, even in heaven there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repents? So you and I as Christians, that is, a, that is something we ought to rejoice in, but also that prompts us to pray for them. We see that faith is so essential. It is only through faith that we are united to Christ. It is only through faith alone that we are justified in Christ. It is through faith that we are children of God through Christ. Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, Galatians 3.16, For in Christ Jesus... You are, the, are all sons of God through faith. So when Paul hears of their faith, this is a joyful thing for him. You see, this is what the church is here for. To be a light of the gospel that brings sinners to faith in Christ. We are a light that is meant to shine far beyond these four walls in which we come together and worship. You understand that? Now, this is a light in itself. Every time we gather on the Lord's Day, we're testifying. We're come to worship a risen, reigning 
King and Savior. You see, see, our Lord, He's not dead, all right? And so if He was dead, if He was in the tomb, we would be wasting our time here today. But He's not dead. And so every time we gather together here today, we testify by our gathering that Christ is risen, our faith alone is in Him, and that He is our Lord. And so the testimony of the church in the Ephesus, the testimony of the believers as they gathered and as they lived out their faith, it was a light of Christ in that city. And so Paul rejoiced to hear of their faith just like he had heard in other churches too. Paul said to the Romans of the Roman church in Romans 1.8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. What a testimony that is for the church there in Rome. So faith in Christ is a witness to the world around us that we as believers, we are persuaded, we are convinced, and we are committed to the only Lord and Savior there is, the Lord Jesus. So their faith, understand, it wasn't just a faith in anything or anyone. Their faith is specific. It is in the Lord Jesus. Because Christ alone is Lord and Savior, and there is no disconnection between those two identifications of Him. He is both Lord and Savior. So the faith of the Ephesians gives Paul reason to pray for them. But notice with me, letter B, not only does Paul hear of the Ephesians' faith, he also hears of the Ephesians' love. He hears of the Ephesians' love. Now notice in verse 15 what he says. He says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Now, how great a connection this is. And this is an essential connection for us to make and understand when looking at the Scriptures. Love for the saints is evidence of faith in the Savior. Understand this. Love for the saints is evidence, is a fruit of faith in the Savior. When one truly has come to faith in Christ, they have a love for all others who have this same faith. Now, this does not mean that we only love the saints and we don't love the sinners outside of faith. We do love sinners outside of faith, but the context here is about loving the saints. Don't don't mistake me there. So understand that in the community of believers, There is a loving unity and bond among those in Christ that unites them together because they together are one in Jesus Christ. Even if there may be secondary differences or convictions on other matters, which that's what we see in Christianity, where there are secondary differences and convictions on other matters, it doesn't change our love for those who are genuinely in Christ. Now, here's what Jesus said. John chapter 13 and verse 35, he said, By this, all people will know that you are my my disciples if you have what for one another? Love. If you have love for one another. So, So Jesus teaches his disciples that your love for each other will be an outward testimony that you belong to me. Because love is central to the gospel. You see, Christians, loving other Christians, is a witness to the world that they belong to Christ. And this is what Paul has heard about the Ephesians. Now notice that Paul says here, their love is not toward only the saints 
in Ephesus, or only the saints who agree with them on everything. Notice that their love is towards all the saints. All the saints, because every saint is the same in Christ. Every saint is a sinner saved by the grace of God and belongs to the family of God. It is this love towards other saints that bears witness of our union in Christ. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, comments and writes, There is but one God, and they that serve Him should be one. There is nothing that would render the true religion more lovely and make more proselytes to it than to see the possessors of it tied together with the heartstrings of love. Love makes a major impact and is a great witness. And understand this, Christian, that without genuine love toward the saints, there is no genuine faith in the Savior. That's just how Scripture lays it out for us. The two go together. Love for Christians is a direct fruit of being born again. Now, the gospel, excuse me, not the gospel, but the letter of 1 John, one of the purposes of that letter is to point out what is fruit of the new birth, to give assurance of one's new birth. And he says in 1 John 4, 7, here gives one, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In that same chapter, he emphasizes the importance of this love. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 John. And I want to read just two verses here, verse 20 and verse 21 of chapter number 4. He says to these Christians, 1 John 4 and verse 20 through verse 21, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You'll find that truth peppered throughout that little letter of John. So understand this. John does not leave us any wiggle room for some saints we should not love from others. Does this mean we are to love saints who have some different convictions than ours? who have problems that are different than ours, who might even be in a different denomination? Absolutely, we're to love them. Now, mark this as well. Loving all saints does not mean that we throw discernment out the window either. So love does not unify uh, everyone in one umbrella of certain doctrine because there certainly is doctrinal differences on certain other matters. But at the core of this, understand this, that if someone genuinely knows Christ, they are a professor of faith, possessor of faith in Christ, I love them as my brother and sister. Even though we may differ on some other issues, I will extend love towards them. And so understand that as we look at this, if one is truly a saint having genuine faith in Christ, they are to be loved by other Christians. Because here's the danger. It is easy for us to examine other Christians and focus on the differences or the negatives or their sins or their problems and turn to them with great criticism and fail to love them as you ought to love them. That's the danger we face. One of the things we're good at as humans is looking at others and finding the faults and magnifying those faults. 
magnifying those differences. And in our magnification of those differences, our actual root of that is pride because we think we're better because they're not like us. Harold preached a great message on that in, in Fellowship of the Gospel in our POG conference. I encourage you to listen to that. But I'm not going to reiterate everything he said. If there was ever a church with immense problems, we would look at Corinth as a church that had problems. Yet Paul loved them and was thankful for them. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So this love is essential. It doesn't throw out discernment. It doesn't throw out the need for correction. It doesn't throw out the, 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 the stances we take as a, as a church body. Uh, where we have our doctrinal statement, but it does mean that we love all Christians, even though we may differ from them on some other issues. So the Ephesians, what do they have here? They have love towards all the saints. And Paul rejoices to hear of the faith and love in the Ephesians, just as he had heard of in other churches. He wrote to the Colossians, a, a parallel letter to this one in Colossians 1.4, Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love that you have for all the saints. You will find that faith and love, they are interwoven. Together, they are core qualities of the true Christian. Martin Luther rightly commented on this and said, The whole being of any Christian is faith and love. Faith brings the person to God. Love brings the person to people. And so hearing of this faith and love, Paul is urged to pray for them, and so also must we. Notice with me number two this morning, we see the reverence of Paul's prayer. The reverence of Paul's prayer. And we see just a little bit as we're getting into the prayer in a moment, how Paul approaches this matter of prayer for the Ephesians. Notice with me, firstly, letter A, that he prays with thankfulness for the Ephesians. You look at verse 16. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, we notice the thankfulness of Paul here for this church. He genuinely was thankful to the Lord for this body of believers that was there in Ephesus. And any and all thankfulness always goes to the one who has provided and given that which we're thankful for, right? You know, there's a lot of people in the world that come to Thanksgiving time and a lot of unbelievers say, oh, I'm so thankful, I'm so thankful, I'm so thankful. I have to ask them, who are you thankful to? Yourself? Every good gift and every perfect gift comes where? Comes from where? From the Father of lights, from God, who has no change. Now, what do we find here? The body of believers in Ephesus, why is there a body of believers there in Ephesus who are partakers of this eternal blessedness that he's described in the doxology? Because God, in his sovereign grace, called them out of darkness and established them there as a church. So Paul is thankful for, for the work of grace that God has wrought on this Ephesian group of people. The church exists because the Lord in His grace saved them, bringing them to faith in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And for this, Paul is thankful. Now, I love this, how, how Paul, throughout his letters, Paul is always quick to say to these Christians, I am thankful for you. I am thankful for you. He says it to the Colossians. We give th always thanks to God the Father 
and of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Colossians 1.3. He says to the Thessalonians, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. We just read this about the Corinthians. He was thankful for them. He's thankful here for the Ephesians. And so why was Paul so thankful for these churches? Because Paul genuinely cared for these churches. When Paul writes and says, I am thankful for you, it's not just words, it's just not, not just ink on paper. This is genuine in his heart. He had a deep love for the saints, just as every Christian should. But we can see more specifically in this calling in his life, Paul's thankfulness is related deeply to his calling and how God has, God has given him the charge of caring for the churches and, and ministering the gospel to them. They were a deep burden on his heart. Now, I, I love what he says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28. Here's what Paul says. Apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. What does that communicate to us about Paul's heart? That Paul, though he's in prison, guess what's on his mind? The church in Ephesus. The church in Corinth. The church in Thessalonica. The church in Colossae. The churches of Galatia. He, he has this burden, this weight on his mind because he loves the people of God. He loves the local church. He loves these people who God has called and established into a body. And so this brings us, we see that which is deep in Paul's heart comes to his mind in prayer. And did you know the same is true for us? That which is deep in our hearts usually comes up in our prayers, doesn't it? That which is very important to us. He says he gives thanks remembering you in my prayers. Now this caused me to think, what must Paul's prayer list have looked like? What must Paul's prayer list have looked like? I mean, we, we often, you know, we will write down and have a prayer list and we often need prayer lists to remember certain things. Whether he had a written list or not, we don't know. But there is a list in his heart that could not escape his mind. As he prayed, he would thank the Lord. Thank you for the Ephesians. Thank you for the Colossians. Thank you for the Corinthians. And Paul says here, I do not cease to give thanks for them. Now Paul would later instruct the church in Thessalonica. He would tell them in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. What is it to pray without ceasing? It suggests a mental attitude of prayerfulness. Continual personal fellowship with God and consciousness of being in the presence of God throughout the day. In other words, there's, there, there's no point in which Paul is hesitant to pray. When, when the Ephesians comes to his mind, he calls unto the Lord and thanks God for them and lifts them up in prayer. So Paul was, was in daily prayerfulness thanking the Lord for these churches. Now, consider some applications from Paul's prayerful heart here. Things that I think and challenge myself well with. How often, thinking of Paul's relation here, how often do we tell another Christian that we are thankful for them? How often have we gone to another Christian in our own body and just told them, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for you. 
How often do we mention to another Christian that we love them and pray for them? I can tell you that that little statement that will cost you a whole two seconds of your life is one of the most encouraging things that you can do in the local church. Is to tell another Christian, I'm thankful for you and I'm praying for you. That's one takeaway I think we've received from Paul. But number, another takeaway, are we thankful for the church of God? Are we thankful for this local church to which we belong? I feel somewhat in the same manner as Paul. I'm so thankful for Lee Creek Baptist Church. Every day that crosses my mind. I'm so thankful for this body of believers that God has placed me here and that I get to know you and minister here among you. I'm not just saying that. This is a genuine heart confession from me that I think of on a daily basis. I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for the other churches that I've been involved in. I'm thankful for all churches who are, who are proclaiming the, the name of Christ and, uh, and are continuing and being faithful unto Him. You see, anywhere and everywhere that we see or hear of other Christians... We ought to thank the Lord for them because God has established them there for the same purpose that He has established us here. It's to proclaim the gospel, to advance His kingdom and bring glory to His holy name. A third takeaway from Paul's thankfulness here is what does our prayer list look like? What does our prayer list look like? Is our prayer list just a list or is it a genuine reflection of our hearts. What a challenge this is to us in our matter of prayer. So Paul prays with thankfulness for the Ephesians. But notice, secondly, that Paul prays also. He prays with submission to God the Father. He prays with submission to God the Father. Look at verse 17. Notice that as he's describing his manner in which he comes to prayer, he says, he, he, he remembers them in his prayers. He says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of of glory may do something for them. So, so we see the, 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 the prayerful manner, the reverence in which Paul comes to the Lord in prayer. Who is it that Paul prays to on behalf of the Ephesians? It is God the Father. He says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this in no way diminishes Jesus Christ as God. He is indeed God, but He is also at the same time the Son of God. This recognizes and points out to us the Father's role in sending His Son and that the Son was submissive to the Father in accomplishing redemption through His death and resurrection. Jesus manifested this, this state of mentality and submission in John six thirty eight. He said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. He always manifested Himself in submission to God the Father. And so Paul follows that same pattern. He is in submission to God the Father. And so how did Jesus teach His people to pray? He taught them to pray unto God the Father, right? We pray unto the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. So prayer involves the Trinity, the triune God. Jesus taught them in Luke eleven two. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. So he's teaching them a reverential, humble, submissive way in which they are to pray unto God. Paul calls the Father here the Father of glory. What does this show us in Paul's prayer? 
that Paul recognizes the Father with the deepest of reverence, that he is the glorious one and performs all things for his glory. As we've seen through this text, through chapter 1, the Father's sovereignty in all things flows from beginning to end as you study this doxology. And Paul humbly here says to them, I approach, I approach the Father of glory on behalf of you. I approach the omnipotent one who can fulfill that which I am petitioning for you. Friend, this is the manner in which Paul prays. And the manner in which he prays, this reverence in which he prays, is an example to us in how we ought to pray with thanksgiving and with submission to God the Father, beseeching Him through the Lord Jesus Christ. But you'll notice that He not only gives thanks to the Lord for them with reverence to the Father, this brings us really now to the content of His, of his prayer. We've seen His reverence. But now we see, number three this morning, the request in Paul's prayer. And this is really where there's probably more meat that we need to flesh out, but I'll try to do it in a timely fashion. This really is where we get to the prayer itself. And there's, I want to break this down just in, in two aspects here is this first half of the prayer. Paul's prayer, firstly, is that they receive deeper knowledge of God or a more full understanding of God. Now look at verse 17 with me for a moment. 17, the latter part of that verse, he prays to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory. What's he praying for them? That the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of who? Of him that He may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, now, what Paul prays for the Ephesians here, it's not the typical prayer we hear in our churches today, is it? He does not pray for their ease and comfort. He's not praying for them to be spared from persecution or affliction. He does not pray for them to have good health or full enjoyment of the world. No doubt, the Ephesians had pressing personal needs in their lives, and those are a matter of prayer. Those are important things to pray for. But the prayer of the Ephesians here, the prayer the Ephesians needed that Paul recognizes was for their spiritual growth and understanding of God. And you understand that the route to all the other trials and things that we experience in life Getting through those things comes down to our foundation of what we know of God. Knowledge of God is what truly sustains us in those other things that we also pray for. You see, often what we think is our greatest needs are not actually our greatest needs. We sometimes have to learn that. Sometimes if you feel sick, we may think you know what you need. I probably need this kind of medicine. But then you go to the doctor, and what's the doctor do? He examines you and says, well, you need this. So what you thought you needed was actually not exactly what the doctor examined you and realized that you needed. Now, this happens much in Christian life and in the life of churches. We need what God sees that we need. 
And it's not always that we perceive what we need. So what Paul prays for them here is the great need of churches today. And so let's break this down for a moment. As we break this prayer down, notice firstly that Paul says that the Father may give you the spirit of wisdom. What does Paul mean by this request? Paul's intention for the Ephesians here is that they have wisdom and knowledge of Him. The core of this prayer is that the Ephesians would be illumined, illuminated, to a deeper and wider knowledge of God and His works. Now, how is it that any Christian will ever receive deeper wisdom and knowledge of God? It is through the illuminating ministry of who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus said to His disciples in John 16, 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, that particular text deals specifically with illumination for the apostles, I believe, in reference to inspiration for the Scriptures in the apostolic age that they would be leaders in. But it also communicates that reality of how the Spirit works in illuminating and helping us to understand and grow. Now, why would Paul pray for them to receive the spirit of wisdom if they already are indwelt with the spirit at conversion, right? You remember verse 13 and 14? They're indwelt with the Holy Spirit already. Jesus taught His disciples in the context of prayer in Luke eleven thirteen. He said, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? When, Paul, when Jesus says this, there's a Greek article there that gives an identification of what He's talking about. He's not talking about the person of the Spirit being given to those who already have it. He's talking about the working of the Spirit in a great way. It is not that they did not have the person of the Holy Spirit, but that the power of the Spirit would be evident in their life, in growing them and cultivating them in the knowledge of God. You see, though every believer is indwelt with the Spirit, not every believer manifests the same maturity and growth, do they? They just don't. What's Paul praying here? He's praying for these Ephesians, essentially, to grow and to know the depths of God and His person and who He is. You see, we depend on the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Christian, you can't live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. You just can't do it. We depend on the Spirit for, 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 for guidance, for strength, for comfort, to help us, to, to teach us, to, uh, to enable us. And when it comes to growing in wisdom, revelation, and knowledge, that only happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the author of this wisdom. He is the one who gives revelation of knowledge that Paul wants them to have. Only through the Spirit will they receive such. Now, Paul writes to the Corinthians in this matter. I want to take you there. Bear with me for a moment. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 6 through 16. This kind of fleshes out further what Paul's praying on behalf of them. Shows us a little bit more. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6 through 16. Maybe take this home and read it again later and just look at it. Yet among the mature, mature Christians, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, 
who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us, how? Through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord, so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. You notice what Paul is ushering forth here. The deep wisdom of God. And how does this deep wisdom of God come about? How is it that we understand it? He says God has revealed it to us through the Spirit. We cannot know the deep things of God without the work of the Holy Spirit. How could any one of you know the deep things about me except I reveal them to you? You can't look into my heart and mind. The same applies to you. And so if we are to truly know the depths of God... We must know them through the person of the Holy Spirit. That is His ministry. John Calvin commenting and says this, Till the Spirit has become our instructor, all that we know is folly and ignorance. Till the Spirit of God has made it known to us by secret revelation, the knowledge of our divine calling exceeds the capacity of our own minds. Friend, it is the Spirit of God who gives His people wisdom and illumination. And when Paul says here that he wants them to have revelation in the knowledge of Him, he's not talking about receiving a new word from God. You hear that a lot today in charismatic movements, getting a new word from God. Let me tell you something, friend. You've already got the word of God. And this is what you hear and learn of God from. The Spirit of God and the Word of God work in conjunction. And so the Spirit of God illumines and gives us knowledge of God through His written Word. Through His written Word. Now notice that he says that he wants them to know knowledge of Him. Of who? Of God. Well, you say, didn't the Ephesians already know God? Of course they did. They knew Him personally through salvation. But did they know all there was to know about God and His works? Absolutely not. And this, friend, is the great tragedy of the modern church. Many Christians do not know God beyond just their saving knowledge. And that's it. They get saved and think, oh, I know God, I'm good to go. Friend, your salvation is the beginning of when you know God, not the end. It's the beginning of you getting to know Him in a more personal and deep way. Much of Christianity today is drive through and not sit down. Now, you compare a drive through meal to a sit-down meal. Which one is better? Which one's better prepared? 
healthier, more tasty, more filling, more cultivating to the body. I want you to understand something, Christian. You cannot know God deeply on a spiritual fast food diet. And in our world, everything is so fast-paced and nobody has time for anything that, that just coming to church on the Lord's Day almost is like an inconvenience to a lot of people. God, help us today. We have a risen Lord that you can know personally and intimately in your heart and understand this, that God's people need a deeper intake of truth from God's Word. They need to hear it. You need to chew on it. You need to meditate on it. If you don't understand something, wrestle with it until you get an understanding of it. That's what we're called to do. 2 Peter 3.18, Peter says to the Christians, he calls on them to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what is the result of lacking knowledge of God? I want to give you two quick things that is a result of this. When we lack knowledge of God, the Christian remains a baby in Christ, never maturing as he ought to mature. There are many adult spiritual infants in the church today. It does not matter how old you are. You can be 70 years old as a Christian and still be a baby in Christ. Because growth in Christ is not physical, it's spiritual. Some, the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 5, 13 and 14, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. And that's what we see in Paul's day. It's happening here today still. We need mature Christians with knowledge of God. Second danger. If a Christian is not growing in in the depths of the knowledge of God, Christians are led astray into subtle teachings that warp or erase their biblical convictions and worldview. So many that are professing believers go off astray into all these other side movements that look good, but as at the core are compromises to the gospel. God, God said through the prophet Hosea in Hosea 4.6, My people are destroyed for a lack of what? Lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I have rejected you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Understand that in Ephesus... There was a lot of subtle different teachings that appeared spiritual. And this is why Paul prays this way. He wants them to be deeply rooted in the truth of God and His works. Lack of knowledge destroys, especially a lack of knowledge of God. Yeah, Carson rightly commented here, what is the greatest need in the church today? The one thing we need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. I wholeheartedly agree with that. That is why in Paul's prayer here, he prays that they would have their eyes of their hearts enlightened. You know your heart has eyes? I didn't know that. Let me give you this little, little excerpt here from John MacArthur. In most modern cultures, the heart is thought of as the seat of emotions and feelings, but most ancient Hebrew, Greeks, many others, considered the heart to be the center of knowledge, understanding, thinking, and wisdom. So Paul wants the inner core and being of them to be able to see clearly, see clearly and know who God is and what He's doing and what He's done. 
how greatly we need to pray this way for our churches today. My, my heart for Lee Creek is not that you just come here and go and just kind of go through the Christian routine. No, my heart for you is that you genuinely and deeply know God. That's it, that you know Him. Letter B, let me go through this quickly. I spent a lot of time on that one. This is the bulk of it, but I'm trying to get through it. Bear with me. Second aspect of his prayer here is that they have deeper confidence in God's promises. Deeper confidence in God's promises. With the Spirit's illuminating work in their hearts, revealing knowledge of God, Paul connects this further, that they have deeper confidence, appreciation, and expectation in God's plan for them. Look at verse 18 again. Look at verse 18 and 19. What does he say? That you may know, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might? You'll notice that with this illumining, He wants them to know something. And so there's three quick things here He wants them to know. The first one is this. He wants them to know what is the hope to which He has called you. What is the hope he's called, they're called to? Now take note of this word hope. We often use the word hope in our culture with a negative connotation, right? I hope I don't get sick or I hope I get that promotion. There's not a real assurance that you're going to not get sick or get that promotion, right? It's, it's, it's a hope so, right? But Paul uses a Greek word here, elpsis, that for hope that, that means looking forward to something with some reason of confidence respecting fulfillment. So, so the word for hope, understand, it is not... A question mark, it's an exclamation point. There's a difference. Hope is an expectation, a confidence that they've been called to. Our hope in Christ is firm, not wavering. Our salvation depends on this hope. Paul said in Romans 8.24, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For what hope for what? For who hopes for what he sees? And here's what Paul's trying to tell them. Christians in Ephesus, I want you to know what is this hope that you've been called to. It's a heavenly hope with certainty laid up for them in heaven. Secondly, considering this hope, he says he wants them to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What are the riches now, notice the, the hope of the believer brings us to the riches of this glorious inheritance of the saints. Again, we can see this phrase in two ways. What is this inheritance? Well, there's two things that are brought out that are both biblically true. The saints are the inheritance of God or that the saints receive an inheritance of God. Both of those are taught in Scripture and both of those could be drawn from this. But here's what we understand. Believers, as the saints of God, have a glorious inheritance beyond which you and I can fathom, that is eternal and heavenly. And Paul wants them to recognize here the riches of this inheritance. The riches of this inheritance. You look at chapter 2 and verse 7, what does he say there? He says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, here's where I want you to contemplate and realize this, Christian. There are no riches that can compare to the inheritance that you have in Christ. 
Think of this for a moment. I know you're hungry, but this is, this is more filling than any cheeseburger you can get, all right? What are the riches? What is of greater worth than being the people of God? Nothing. What is of greater worth than having a heavenly inheritance to go to? Nothing. Nothing. All that the world offers us does not even compare to the inheritance that the saints possess in Christ. And Paul says, I want you to know what you have. I want you to know who you are and what you have in Christ. And lastly, thirdly, Paul prays in regards to them having confidence of this this plan of God for them. Paul says he wants them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. What power does Paul have in mind? He's talking about the power of resurrection in their hearts, which is exemplified in Christ's resurrection. He'll bring that out in the latter part of the prayer, which we'll see later. But Calvin comments on this and says, Paul's object, therefore, was not only to impress the Ephesians with a deep sense of the value of divine grace, but also to give them exalted views of the glory of Christ's kingdom, that they might not be cast down by a view of their own unworthiness. He exhorts them to consider the power of God, as if he had said that their regeneration was no ordinary work of God, but was an astonishing exhibition of His power. Now here's sometimes what we fail to see. Sometimes we fail to see and perceive the power it took for us to be made new in Christ. So many think that those who are Christians think, oh, I just became a Christian. Friend, you dig into the Scriptures, you're going to realize it was a miracle that you are a Christian that you are born again. It took the power of atonement and resurrection in the person of Christ. It took the power of spiritual regeneration in the Holy Spirit. And Paul says this power is immeasurable towards us who believe. We can measure most things in life. Height, depth, length, width of many things. But the power of God displayed towards us is immeasurable. Beyond the ability to measure it. And so understand, Christian, the same power that raised Christ from the dead raises you from the dead. The same power that resurrected Him brought your dead soul to life and will see its fulfillment at the resurrection on the last day. The same power that overcame death, hell, and Satan is given to us in Christ. And with that power, friend, we can have nothing but confidence in what God is doing. And has done. So Paul's request in this prayer seeks the Spirit's illuminating work in the church that they know God deeply. They know the gospel blessings confidently. What a rich prayer it is for the Ephesians. But understand this today that it is more than just a prayer for the Ephesians, it is a prayer for every church. It's a prayer for Lee Creek, it's a prayer for me, it's a prayer for you. It's a call for us to grow in the knowledge of God and His gospel. It's a challenge to us in how we are to pray for our church. So let us ask ourselves some questions very briefly in closing. Do we know all there is to know about God and His promises? We would all say no to that. You know what that means? Keep growing. Keep studying. Keep digging. 
submit yourselves to Scripture. Lastly, do we pray for our church? Do we pray for our church? And if we do pray for our church, in what manner do we pray for our church? How do we pray for our church? We need to pray for the requests that we offer, but more than that, we need to pray for the bigger picture of what God has us here for as well. Let us pray. Let us give ourselves to the Lord as Paul has manifested here. Let's stand to our feet as we close in a word of prayer. Brother Ron will come and lead us in a closing song. Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning. Father, I'm so thankful for this text. It seems like every time we dig into the word, there's just so much there that time flees us to cover it all. Your word is inexhaustible, so rich, so deep. I'm so thankful that you've given it to us. Not only that you've given us your word, but that you have given us the spirit of God who indwells us. Father, what we've read in this prayer here today is so needed for the churches of this generation. It's needed here in Lee Creek. It's needed in the churches around us in our state, in our nation. So many Christians do not know you as they ought to know you. It's my prayer, Father, that you illuminate your people through your spirit, that you would help us to grow, help us to be strong and firm in the faith. And may we, as we grow, Lord, learn to pray like Paul prayed, to have a heart of reverence and thankfulness for your people. And may we keep Christ and his kingdom at the forefront of our hearts and minds. Thank you again, Father, for this time of worship. We ask it in Jesus' name.